Unlike last year, we made it through Martin Luther King Day without a big walloping of snow. How deep will we get into this winter without a lot of snow? It's a question that's on Laura Johnston's mind. <laughs> it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and the aforementioned Laura, who's just back from Vermont, where she says they didn't have any more snow than we do. Yep, no more snow. It was green and wet when we got to Vermont. Uh, got up in the mountains a little bit. There was a little bit of snow, but everything I was skiing on was completely man-made. So. And when you told people you were from Cleveland, they acted like you were from a foreign nation. Yeah, they were like, oh, Ohio? I, I think they. it's an eight-hour, you know, good eight-hour drive, and I think they think they probably mix up where Ohio is with Iowa. Um, <laughs> and they also wondered if there was any ski hills in, in Ohio. And it's like, no, I live in a cornfield. I just reach out my door and pick my corn. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it's been three days of news. Let's get to it. How is Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan directly taking on President Joe Biden in one of the more controversial news stories so far in 2023? Lisa, is there anywhere that Joe Biden did not have secret documents? Uh, it, it's a story that's still unfolding, apparently. It looks like the focus has been on his home in Delaware and then the uh, Bi Penn Biden Center, where the first cache was discovered in a locked closet. But our Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, he wrote a letter along with uh, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana to Attorney General Merrick Garland. They're seeking all documents, communications on Biden's handling of classified information from the FBI, the DOJ, the president's office, and he wants more information on the appointment of special counsel Robert Herr. And they also in this letter set a January 27th deadline to get those documents. So what they're you know saying in this letter, they're saying, well, look, it's not clear when the Department of Justice knew about the documents and if it concealed them before the election. Because as we learned when the first cash was discovered, it was November 2nd, a week before the election, and we didn't know about it until after Christmas. And they say they're also unclear about the interactions between the president and the Department of Justice, and they want to know why it was handled differently than the Trump documents. <laughs> I have to laugh there. I'm sorry. But anyway, in the letter, I, Jordan said, quote, well, there was publicly available evidence of Trump's voluntary cooperation, and there was excessive and unprecedented access to a private residence. And he said that Garland has failed to respond to his request because he's been requesting information on various things. But he says, you know, he hasn't gotten any requests for the FBI search of the Mar-a-Lago uh, compound. And in a statement, Attorney General Merrick Garland said that the the appointment of, uh, of Robert Herr underscores a commitment to independence and accountability in this investigation. And the Senate Judiciary Chair, Dick Durbin, the Democrat from Illinois, concurs. He says, we're trying to avoid politicizing this incident. Well, there are a couple of things there. Jordan's flat out wrong about the, the Donald Trump yep. voluntarily turning stuff over. He, he, the archives department went at him a number of times before we knew anything about this. I mean, you want to talk about when it was disclosed. They knew he had documents for a long time before this went public, but they finally went to the Justice Department and said, he won't give them up. This is serious. And the Justice Department took it over. So you can't really compare the timing of how long uh, the Biden stuff was secret to the Trump stuff. But 
I, I do think this needs full investigation. I mean, presidents are not supposed to take top secret documents with them when they leave office and vice presidents. And it's you would think that after the Donald Trump scandal, where he took a ton of records and was trying to hold on to them, that that others would have looked and said, do we have any? And they kind of didn't. Well, and it makes you wonder how many previous presidents have hung on to classified documents, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So there could be a lot of documents rattling around out there that we just don't know about. So, yeah, it is very concerning. And it, and I think it calls for more stringent oversight of these documents. Yeah, I mean, that's the good thing that will come out of this is that there'll, I hope there'll be some pretty strict rules. And and as much as we give Jordan heck for all of his nonsense, this is actually a worthy area of his exploration. But you can't, you know, you can go after Biden for this, but then you can't. You know what? You know, you have to treat Trump the same way. I think I was reading somebody said, well, you know, the danger of them going after this is that, you know, they have to go after Trump as well. Well, I, but with Trump, I think you're actually facing criminal charges because he was thwarting an investigation. He was being dishonest and saying, I don't have things. I mean, that, that was pretty bad, but they had to raid his house to get the secret documents that he kept claiming he didn't have. Biden is turning stuff over left and right as soon as it's discovered. There's a very big difference between the two. Mm -hmm. It's today in Ohio. How is Ohio making it a bit easier for people to adopt children, particularly those with special needs? Laura Andrew Tobias went deep on this. This is a new thing that comes out of last year's legislature. Right. Came out of lame duck. So even adoption experts don't really know all of the details yet. But the state is giving grants. And the idea is to encourage families who couldn't otherwise afford to adopt to be able to add kids to their family. It's also hoping to cut down on the about 3,400 Ohio kids available for adoption. So there are three different parts of this. There's a $10,000 grant to families who adopt that replaces an existing $10,000 state adoption tax credit, but actually makes it a whole lot easier because it's upfront. It's one grant. You don't have to go through your taxes and show all of the expenses incurred. And you, you could add up to five years of doing your taxes to end, to get that $10,000. There's a $15,000 grant for fostering a child after fostering the child as a certified caregiver and because that's a lot less of expensive an adoption that's really just to help take on the cost of r raising a, a child which is not cheap. And then there's a $20,000 grant to adopt a child with special needs and that qualifies as anything, developmental disabilities, mental or psychological disorder, a medical condition that causes distress, pain, dysfunction, or social problem, anything that requires ongoing medical care. And as we know, a lot of kids that are in the systems who have been through foster care, who have had trauma in their lives, they could end up with severe issues, because you know, mental, physical, emotional, because of the mistreatment they faced in their lives. So this can help you adopt a child and get them the help they need. There's also $2,500 to pay for college expenses for adopted kids, which I think is great. I wonder if this is going to create a situation where more adoptive parents are seeking to get their kids into special education so that they qualify for the, the extra money. I mean, I think that's possible, but we all know that it's difficult to get extra help you know, for kids. Uh, there's not enough providers. And so I think... I'm going to bet that the majority of these kids probably already have some kind of social emotional needs, and this will help get them the care that they they need. It's today in Ohio. 
We're on the eve of tax filing season for the 2022 tax year. So, Layla, where does the city of Cleveland stand in its very slow response to tax refund requests for 2021? And what surprising fact did we learn when we checked back in on this controversial story? Well, Cleveland's Central Collection Agency is almost done processing the income tax refunds from 2021. As of last week, they had about 500 left to go of the 5,300 requests that were filed for 2021. I mean, to be fair, they they received a dump of several hundred requests as late as October because that was the deadline for filers who were given an extension. But let's also remember that CCA was still lagging greatly this entire year behind Cincinnati and Columbus. Both of those cities had processed more than 6,000 refunds by mid-July. So CCA told Courtney that just Courtney Astolfi, that just over 60% of the refunds processed were from folks who had worked from home during 2021, so the majority. But here's the surprising thing that Courtney discovered in her reporting. Despite the fact that refunds issued were higher than in recent years, Cleveland is still likely to end up with higher income tax revenue than the year before the pandemic. Who would have thought? I mean, after refunds, the city is keeping $509 million in revenue this year. And that's that's above 2019 figures when they sit when the city collected about $500 million and had to refund 10.6. Uh, the, the tax administrator for CCA, Kevin Preslin, said it's probably because people made more money. Maybe we have inflation and the rising cost of living to thank for that. But but that plus the fact that fewer people than expected actually filed for refunds meant the city took less of a hit than was forecasted during 2021. When you and I were talking about this last week, I was surprised to learn you never put in for a refund. It didn't. It was a hassle, and you were in the middle of a home renovation project. I regret it, though. I, but I, was, I, <laughs> I know. But it, I really I looked at it and was away. like, this this is a headache that I just can't take on right now. And I think a lot of people clearly did the same thing because 5,000 plus re- refund request is much lower than I thought it would be and probably accounts in part for why the city has some extra money. I'm a little worried about that October deadline because there'll be or arguments, I think, March 1st before the Ohio Supreme Court on whether it was legal for cities to collect income tax in the 2020 tax year, Hmm. the first full year of the pandemic, uh, the Buckeye Association has sued them. So a lot of people never filed for refunds. And I hope the Supreme Court doesn't ultimately rule, well, it was illegal for them to take the money, but if you didn't file for a refund, you're out Hmm. of luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason you didn't file for a refund is because that you were told you couldn't get one and the city was just rejecting. I kind of assumed though that that there would be some extension of the statute of limitations for something like that, given that we're all waiting for that Supreme Court ruling. Except they just did this in the speed camera tickets. People didn't file for it. So, oh, well, you're out of money. They let the city keep $4 million. And, you know, and this is the Sharon Kennedy uh, Supreme Court. Laura, you're still one of those few that didn't get it, right? Well, they think they denied me. Let me tell you. They have not denied me. I am still working on this. But there is a way that they can stamp it and basically say they didn't give it to me. But I ended up having to resend a letter. And apparently they sent me a letter in August. I only found this out last week because I never received the letter. And I called three times in the fall after we talked about this going, I just want to check on it. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll get to it. And then I finally talked to somebody in December that I sent an email. I mean, it has just been 
just a lot of frustration dealing with the bureaucracy and multiple people sending in more information. And it, it's incredibly frustrating because it's my money that I paid to the city that I would like back. And they could just be like, nope, you know, and, and not really answer a lot of questions about it. And they have acknowledged, you know, in Courtney's story, that this has been a frustrating process for a lot of people and that they hope to be better this year. Well, yeah. The only way they're going to be better is if they ramp up. It sounds to me like they use the exact same staffing they'd had in previous years, regardless of this flood of applications. But maybe, Layla, when you hear about Laura's problems, you're thinking, yeah, I was better off just to skip this. <laughs> well, I mean, this, that's exactly why I, I passed on it. I just didn't want that in my life right now. But And remember, <laughs> they told us you had to pay your hometown first, right? So I paid all my Oof. money for Rocky River you to Rita. just sue them, Laura. And I, <laughs> just sue what? them. <laughs> oh, that is not something I want to get involved in a lawsuit with the city of Cleveland. I mean, they say so. They um, say that they're next year. They're planning on making. Um, they're going to roll out this new refund worksheet that they say offers more information up front about what taxpayers need to provide to be processed more efficiently. <laughs> and they're hoping that that's going to alleviate that, you know, terrible logjam. I'm log not jam. sure that we didn't understand what we needed oh, in the first place. It was the most confusing set of tax forms right. I've well, ever seen. True. I mean, they, they had so many different checkboxes that could have applied. They made this intentionally difficult, I, I agree think. With that. And, and look, it's City Hall. Justin Big keeps saying he's going to make it work better. The fact that it's all on paper and not electronic is still in my mind idiotic anyway we're about to go into the next season we'll be talking about it some more and the supreme court will have a ruling on whether this was all legal anyway it's today in ohio one of the pandemic era's most vital programs for helping people to cope is coming to an end, and it will hit people in their wallets. Lisa, what's happening? The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP, they expanded that during COVID, and the expansion of these benefits ends at the end of February. So Cuyahoga County will lose an estimated $23 million that affects 212,000 residents in the county. That's that's one in six residents. So the average, you know, payout of like $53, 50, I'm sorry, uh, uh, let me go back. So normally during this expansion program, the county was paying out $53 million a month. That will now drop to $30 million a month. So individual cuts will range from about $95 a month into the hundreds of dollars a month. It depends on, you know, your financial situation, how many people in your household and so on. And the county's Department of Jobs and Family Services Deputy Director Kevin Gowan says they started sending letters to recipients and they're warning them, you know, that their last emergency COVID payment will be in late February. But so the COVID expansion payments for SNAP were being made late in the month. People that were already on SNAP, they get that payment at the beginning of the month. That payment will not be affected. They'll still get their SNAP benefits, just not the expanded benefits. So the Jobs and Family Services Department is working with the Food Bank and United Way and others to prepare people for this. Um, it's 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 not going to be pretty. I mean, we've seen, even though the pandemic is, has eased, the food bank is still serving more people than they used to. I just fear that when this is gone, it's just going to get worse. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to get my annual contribution to the food bank in. They're about to get slammed. That's a lot of money. I mean, you are talking about quite a bit of food that people were able to buy these last few years that suddenly they're not going to be able to buy. I hope the food bank's ready to cope with this. They have the new center that's open. They've expanded. Mm -hmm. But wow, this is a, this is a hammer. And the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland is, is urging people who are on SNAP to submit all their expenses to the Department of Job and Family Services because that may get you more SNAP benefits. Include, you know, your expenses for child care, transportation, any increases in your rent or mortgage, or any medical expenses that you pay over $35 a month. So, you know, that's 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 good advice. So I think people that are on SNAP, you know, need to, you know, see if they can maximize their benefit. Okay. It's today in Ohio. How is John Adams College and Career Academy in Cleveland dealing with the shooting death of a student waiting for a bus ride home just outside the school entrance? Laura Molly Walsh did a deeper dive into how this has affected the student body. Yes. And it's not the only time a high school kid has been killed outside their high school this year in Cleveland. So it's happened three times. 18-year-old Pierre McCoy was killed Tuesday. He was waiting for an RTA bus just steps away from the school entrance around 3 p.m. And apparently that bus doesn't come that often. So it's about 50 minutes after the school lets out. So he regularly, anyone who's riding that bus, is outside waiting for a bus for a long time. Uh, Devontae Johnson, is, he was 16. He died in August near Glenville High School where he played football. And in September, another 16-year-old, Andre D. Wells, he was shot while standing on the sidewalk near James Ford Rhodes High School. So uh, CEO Eric Gordon of CMSD addressed this. He had a, t- a tele meeting on Thursday. He detailed more safety measures for students before and after school. After school, They are coordinating with RTA police and Cleveland police, trying to increase the presence. They're monitoring. The police are monitoring security cameras outside of the school. The district's working with the RTA to adjust bus routes so kids don't have to wait so long. So they're trying to adjust this. They're also meeting with the kids, obviously, because this is a lot of trauma for these kids to take on. I mean, people were watching and they don't have, they don't have anyone in custody for this murder. It's almost unimaginable to, to think about it. A high school kid standing on the sidewalk by the entrance at the bus, ready to go getting mowed down. And I just, anybody that's gone to school, anybody that has children in school, it's unfathomable. Right. And how do you keep those kids safe? When you come into the school, you go through the melted detectors, there are police presence there. But as soon as you let them out of the community, you can't control everything, right? So Khalid Samad, he's the CEO of the Youth Violence Prevention Organization, Peace in the Hood. He was at the school on Wednesday. He spoke with students and families coping with the tragedy. He had served as an assistant to the public safety director of Cleveland, working on youth gang intervention in the past. And he's pressing for more community engagement to keep kids accountable for their actions because obviously this well and not obviously but probably not a random shooting right there's probably a lot going on behind the scenes we don't know about and it's scary that this is that school is not a safe place Khalid Samad was one of the first people I interviewed when I came to Cleveland more than a quarter century ago it's good to know that he's still out there fighting the fight it's today in Ohio Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and Cuyahoga County has announced a new and potentially lasting program to honor him, one where longtime residents just might be able to help. 
Layla, what's the plan? Cuyahoga County has, has launched an updated interactive story map, which pays tribute to King's many visits to Greater Cleveland in the 50s and 60s. The map details his travels through a bunch of county neighborhoods from his first speaking of his first visit speaking about the Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama at the Hollanden Hotel downtown in 1956 to his very last visit here in 1967 when he was in the Huff neighborhood supporting a rent strike. There are other stops included Glenville High School and and numerous uh, houses of worship. But the county assembled the information with the help from Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland Memory Project, the Cleveland Library, our own photo archives, the Western Reserve Historical Society, WEWS, and Cleveland Scene. It's it's very cool. The material is organized by neighborhood. It includes all this multimedia, like audio of his speeches. And I saw a video of Bobby Kennedy's City Club speech the day after King's assassination. But the county is hoping that the community can help with this project. They're calling out to residents residents who might have any additional information, photos or other media to share from King's visits, and they're asking them to contribute them to this project. So so listeners, if you have any artifacts that you would like to contribute, you can email information to communications at cuyahogacounty.us. Look, taking pictures is not as common as it was, or, or is much more common now than it was in the 60s. Back then, people would have had an Instamatic camera and would have had film. But you've got to think that in photo albums in Cleveland, there are pictures of King mm-hmm. and his appearance that, that are not widely circulated. I hope people do go looking into their old family photo albums to find them because this would preserve it forever. Mm -hmm. This would be a a historical document that people could turn to time and Mm -hmm. time again. It's very cool that Cuyahoga County has set out to do this. I agree. I agree. It's, It's lovely. Everyone should check it out. It's Today in Ohio. The Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture Tax has been in trouble for some years now because it depends on cigarette sales and they've been dropping. What did the lame duck legislature and Governor Mike DeWine just do to potentially help out, Lisa? Senate Bill 164 was signed by Mike DeWine last week, and this will allow Cuyahoga County to expand its cigarette tax to include nicotine vaping products subject to voter approval. So the current county tax is 30 cents per pack of cigarettes. This money all goes to support Cuyahoga arts and culture. Um, This tax was approved by voters in 2006, and then in 2015, it's set to expire in 2027. The state tax, on a pack of cigarettes is $1.60. So the county can now ask voters for a 9% tax on cigarettes wholesale price. And that would include, uh, you know, nicotine vaping products, which are not currently taxed, which is really kind of surprising, actually. And Cuyahoga Arts and Culture Executive Director Jill Paulson says they haven't really decided yet about when or whether they're going to put it on the ballot. But she did point to declining cigarette sales, equaling a 40% drop in their revenue news from that. Yeah, we've been talking about this for some years. This is a, a radically interesting tax, very innovative the way Cuyahoga County is supporting arts institutions, but it was dependent on a, a funding source that has repeatedly dropped. And so there has to be some way to expand it. Vaping products seem like the answer a few years ago, but even those have been clipped a good bit because the vaping companies were selling them to kids and that's harder and harder to do. I wonder if the vaping products 
will be enough to really generate the revenue they need, or they need to continue looking for a new funding source. I certainly see a lot of people vaping out out in public, so I don't know. But you know, this this has been a really big boon for the arts and culture because they've distributed two hundred and thirty million dollars since two thousand seven, supporting arts and culture experiences that reach millions of people. Yeah, it's it's been a good, a very good tax, and it's had full support. You just have to make sure they have the money coming in. It's today in Ohio. Six months after Akron police killed Jalen Walker, what's happening in that case, Laura? We thought six months was a good time to check in. Right. This is another from Molly Walsh. We are not exactly sure how the investigation is going. That is still underway, and there's been very little, you know, reported about it, but the community is is working to heal and trying to address the issues brought up by this case. And you remember this, this was a 25 year old black man. He was shot 46 times by eight officers as he fled from his car in Akron on the night of June 27th. The shooting drew national attention over July 4th weekend. That's when police released the body cam footage. Akron losses has to be within a week. And that led to days of protests in the city demanding justice, police accountability So Walker's cousin, he's a pastor at St. Ashworth Temple in West Akron. He has said that that he wants to move forward as they continue to grieve. And they had this community event over the last weekend with all sorts of events to discuss the impact of Walker's death. There was a free justice for Jalen symposium on Saturday that talked about public safety, trauma, and mental health. On Monday, there was the Youth Day of Doing that invited young people to participate in community service. So they're really trying to get something positive out of a very sad tragedy, you know, tragedy for the entire city. And the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation is still determining whether excessive force was used by officers doing the shooting. Why does it take so long to do this kind of investigation? They have everything they need. Is it, they, they just delay to kind of temper the community response. What, what do you have to wait for to determine whether excessive force was used? I don't know. I I don't know (laughs) what they're going through. You figure they want to be really sure when they release this because they know it can have major implications on on public safety and how people feel and and whether they protest. And so they just want to get it right. But yeah, six months seems like a really long time for something that this whole community is so focused on. Well, and that for which you have police involvement. So you have body cam footage and you right. know which bullets were fired I mean, from which guns. I mean, how hard can this be? A week after they released the entire footage, I want to say it was something like 18 minutes long. And then the police had their own, like, I don't want to say, it's, I mean, it was just the major points where they were circling things saying this was the fired shot. This was this. And so, I mean, right off the bat, they were showing a lot of information that you figure BCI is looking at, but maybe they've got to do forensics analytics. I don't know. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Jake Zuckerman took us back to the early days of the House Bill 6 corruption investigation, now that we're on the eve of the trial, and he showed us that sports betting was a big part of it at first. Layla, how did sports betting figure into First Energy's big corruption So, well, first of all, Larry Householder's trial is beginning this week, right? And uh, Jake Zuckerman, you know, he did this great look at at the parallels between HB6 and and an an earlier iteration of the sports betting bill. So back in 2019, 
two undercover agents operating as real estate developers from Nashville and and a former Cincinnati Bengals player who was paid by the FBI for his participation in this, met with lobbyist Neil Clark to talk about their support for a sports betting bill because they said they wanted to, to place sports betting terminals in a boutique hotel development that they were working on. The feds say the FBI agents retained Clark to help advance their interest in this, and they paid him $5,000 per month, which was originally in cash. Hiring him as a consultant apparently avoided the public disclosures that that are required of lobbyists. And prosecutors say Clark advised these undercover agents to set aside between 50 grand and 100 grand to pay into 501c4s for three public officials, including Larry Householder. And those so-called, you know, dark money groups are, you know, they refer to that type of nonprofit entity that can raise unlimited amounts to spend on politics without disclosing the source of the money. And this was, of course, the method of corruption that prosecutors say Householder used to accept dirty money from First Energy. In a recorded conversation with these undercovers, Clark described Householder's nonprofit as a secret. He said, no one knows the money goes to Householder's account, which is controlled by, quote, his people. And Clark told the agents that Householder will go to the wall for those who pay into that fund, as First Energy has now admitted to doing. But Clark said that Householder can only do it once a year or otherwise everyone will know he's pay to play. At the time, Clark was also working with Representative Dave Greenspan on a bill to legalize sports betting in Ohio, and prosecutors say Clark advised Householder to kill Greenspan's bill as punishment for the for Greenspan's opposition to HB six. And you know another added element here: Jeff Longstreth, one of the two Householder conspirators who pleaded guilty, later asked Greenspan through an intermediary to delete his text messages from Householder about HB6 in exchange for forgiveness. That's what the feds say. So that sports betting bill that was at the heart of those meetings with Neil Clark passed out of the House but died in the Senate. And then the next group of lawmakers we know passed a sports betting bill that took effect uh, this year. And you know, we won't be hearing from Clark during the Householder trial because he unfortunately died in early 2021, but he left behind this memoir that included details of these interactions with the undercover agents. Yeah, a lot of this information had been reported before, but it hadn't been woven together the way Jake did it here. And that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not illegal for Larry Householder to punish the legislator for not voting the way he wanted. It's illegal to take money to do so. And that's what is at the heart of this case. I think that the Householder team is going to try and confuse jurors by making this as technically complex as possible. And the hardest job the prosecutors have here is making this as as crystal clear as they can for jurors to see what happened. Jury selection is uh, Friday, and I believe they're they're hoping to get to opening uh, statements on Monday. So we'll be talking about that quite a bit over the next month on this podcast. That's it for today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Wednesday talking about the news. 